human mind is quite a marvel. It might not feel that early on a Sunday morning, but the ability to store and retrieve massive amounts of information, to hold it over a lifetime, to, to process it and access it and utilize it. But one of the things we've learned about the mind is that it doesn't work the way that a computer does. It, it doesn't just serve or save raw information, spreadsheets and, and databases. The, the mind actually works best in the context of narrative. We remember stories. We remember incidents. We remember episodes in life. And, and those who become really excellent in their studies have learned to do so because they can situate facts within stories. They've learned to memorize huge amounts of data by placing a story around them. So every first-year piano student had to learn the, the notes on the staff. They learned in the treble clef, E, G, B, D, F. But that's hard for a kid to remember. So most of you learned, like I did, that every good boy deserves fudge. We remember the story. The same thing in the bass clef. Good boys deserve fudge always. And that's how we learned the notes. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. How did you learn that? You hear the song in your head while you're doing that. Uh, first year in, uh, in optics, in science, you were introduced, you may remember, to a man named Roy Gabuff. You remember Roy? Roy helped you to remember the, uh, the different colors in the rainbow spectrum. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet. Meet Roy Gabuff. We just finished, and you'll remember if you've been here for these past weeks, a series called Shape. What we're doing there is telling a story that's meant to help you hold on to some facts about, uh, about how God made you. Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, experience. All of those are ways of accessing information through story. So is it any surprise that when it comes time for Jesus to teach, his most powerful lessons always come framed within a story, a narrative. Within the context of Scripture, in the Gospels, we have a couple of dozen of these, and we call them the parables. These powerful reminders of key principles about God's world and about human life framed within these incredibly memorable stories. Week by week, over the coming weeks, we're going to take these one at a time and, and sort of unpack them and see what truth there is there and what challenge there is there. These stories are entertaining and memorable, but they've got some bite. One of the key things to remember about parables is there's always something that is of a dramatic surprise or just a, a, a punchy reminder. That's what parables do. And this morning, we're going to look at the parable of the talents, or the one that was called in the, the Bible that we read from here, the parable of the bags of gold. A talent was a unit of currency in the life of the New Testament. And so both are probably accurate translations. Let me begin this way, though. Let me, let me ask you, if you can, to generate in your mind, maybe you have to tell a story to do it, but a list of the most deadly sins that you can think of. What would you include in that list? And probably you'll race ahead, and you, maybe you're thinking through some of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you're even envisioning Charlton Heston, the story around that. 
And maybe you'd add a few more. Maybe, maybe the seven deadly sins, if you've uh, looked at those in the Middle Ages. But how many of you would include in the list of the most perishable and fatal and dangerous sins a failure to use the potential that God has given us? I mean, that's what makes this parable so surprising. It's not that we doubt that God uh, is concerned with how we handle what he's given us. It's that it seems to matter to him so very much. Why is Jesus so harsh to this one who hides their investment money? You heard again the, the judgment of Jesus. Take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten more. For everyone who has been given more, they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And take this worthless servant, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the moment that Jonathan finished reading that, Karina learned over and said, that's a hard one. And she's right. I mean, my goodness, this servant doesn't give the money away. He doesn't squander it in a series of bribes. He doesn't blow it having a good time. He doesn't use it to pay off his mortgage. Instead, he simply protects it until his king returns. And what does he get in response? It seems like a maybe just a modest error in judgment, but listen to the blasting that he gets. Throw this worthless servant outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? I mean, why such a ferocious outburst? Does it mean that we go to hell if we don't use what God has given us to use? Listen, before we run off and start a new church that teaches that we get into heaven only through the good use of the, the things that God has given us, let's, let's dig a little bit into the parable. And I'll ask you to pull out your notes in the back of the order of service there. Throughout the Bible, you know, there is an underlying assumption or statement that God sees what we do. And though we've been given lots of things, we're never to take them for granted. Just as at work, we're evaluated regularly through, through scrutiny and through a process, so God evaluates us. And evaluates us every day. It's not just reserved for, for some distant final judgment. This idea of accountability that Jesus is presenting to his disciples when he tells the story, it's not new. Now, note that this parable, if you read back the context, this parable is not being told for the group of religious leaders out on the margins. This is not for the crowds. This is not for the seekers or the uninformed. This is for the disciples. These for the people who knew Jesus, who lived with him every day. So if you're a Christian, if you, you're one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, you trust in his death, you claim the power of his resurrection, this story is for you. When we come to Christ, something new happens in us. There's a new life in us, a new birth. And one of the results of that new life is that someday we live forever in the presence, the literal presence of Jesus. But there's another aspect to being a follower of Jesus. What we now understand is the Creator's investment in us, the things that He has given to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. What He's invested, we have a responsibility to use, to live out that faith we have in the world. You may not see yourself as Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, but God does. 
The investment that he makes in you and his desire to see those things used is no more or less significant than any of those that you might elevate to a heroic status in your own mind. Of the three levels of investment that are here in this parable, you may not see yourself as as the five-bag-of-gold person, or even the two-bag-of-gold person. But regardless, God gives everybody something of value with the assumption that it's going to be useful. There's a danger when we, we think about our accountability before God as something that's only way off in the future. We live, we die, we rest, and then sometime around the, uh, the unknown divine future, there is the return of Christ and there is a judgment, and that's when it all gets called to account. That's not completely accurate, is it? Here's the paradox. Well, it's true that Jesus is returning to judge the earth. The truth is he's also here now. That's the language of the Holy Spirit. This is the incarnate presence of God in the lives of people right now. Being held accountable is something that's going on all the time. Jesus holds me accountable for the use that I'm making of his gifts in my life today. Not just a matter of some future occasion. It's happening every day. God keeps short accounts. Now, a question that you might ask or you should ask is, and this is a story, it's, it's, uh, it's filled with images. Now, God hasn't probably dropped out of heaven into your lap a bag of gold, talents. Maybe he has. Let's go off to Costco. Let's get the big cart this time. But... But what is it that God has placed in you and in me that matters so much to him? If I'm going to be judged on how I use these things, wouldn't it be helpful to know what God is talking about? Well, here's a sampling of some of what these gifts may be. And a few of them are going to resonate with what we've just been talking about for the past six weeks under the language of shape in that series. But here's the first one. And it may be one of the most fascinating and one of the most important. The very fact that you and I exist as human beings is remarkable. Way back in Genesis, we learn that that God has placed the divine imprint in our lives. The beautiful language for it is the Imago Dei, the image of God. Sort of a reflection, a, a bit of God in miniature fashioned into our lives, the divine essence somehow caught up in a small, inaccurate way, but still there, a reflection of him. We're not some cheap reproduction just stamped out in a factory. We're divinely designed and placed in the world. That's an incredible thing. I'm fascinated uh, by by children. And I was thinking about it this week because we're coming in our second service to to bring some of our newborns before God and celebrate them. But I'm from a family of three. Uh, I'm the father of three. I'm fascinated at how different kids can be when they're made of the same genetic material and they're raised in the same home, and yet how different they are. What a statement from our Creator, right? That, that we are unique, unlike anyone else. Each one of us uniquely has something to contribute to the world. We said that for six weeks in the series. God doesn't make copies of anything. He only makes originals. 
and you are an original. Something else, you, you, your, your talents, your abilities, the deposit of God in your life that, that God has placed there in you. All of that has potential for good in God's world. The fourth thing, the older, the older we get, the more we realize that the most important commodity in our life is not the house in which we live or the car that we drive or the balance in our RSP, but is time itself. Because of the busyness and the pace of life, you know, it's easier sometimes just to sign a check and send it off in support of a mission organization than it is to show up on Saturday morning and give the gift of time at the open door or Scott Mission or wherever it is. Time is an investment that God makes in you. Within my personality and my gifts, there are opportunities that come to me and they don't come to anybody else. What do I get to do with these things? They're a gift that requires a choice, right? Every day, opportunities that are there for you. Will I risk taking advantage of those for good purposes or will I just let them settle themselves away? A sixth thing, have you you noticed how we tend to have relationships in our lives and generally they fall into different categories? There are those few that hold together over the long span, years, decades, a lifetime. And there are those that vary with time and place and vocation and interest. God has gifted me with long-term and short-term friends. Both have made a difference in my life. Our investment in each other in relationships can reap enormous dividends. And then a last thing that you might think about it, God's investment in you. The Apostle Paul describes a series of special gifts that God places in our lives. Among the special gifts, here's what he says. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. This is from 1 Corinthians 12. To some, there's given through the Spirit the gift of wisdom. To the other, a message of knowledge by that same Spirit. To another, faith by the Spirit. To others, gifts of healing. To others, miraculous powers. To others, prophecy. To some, distinguishing between different spirits. To others, speaking in different kinds of tongues. To still others, the interpretation of those tongues. And all these are at work in, in, in and through the one and same Spirit as He gives them out to each and every one just as He determines. The ability to take all of those things and invest them, that seems to be what's behind this parable. 28 years ago in, in seminary, I met for the first time a kindly older lady, white-haired, round-faced, ruddy complexion. Her name was Mary. Late into her 60s, she had felt God's call in her life. She was... She was at seminary. She was studying to be ordained into the Anglican Church in the diaconate. Um, Mary led this sort of humble life that we saw weekday mornings in class, but she had a weekend life. And it was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. Her son was a drummer for one of the leading rock bands in the world at the time. And she spent her weekends and her evenings hanging out with the most sordid crowd of people you can possibly imagine. I mean, here is this 67-year-old, wizened, cherubim-faced woman who go to a place where, where women are not always seen the best of terms, but because of who she was and her age, they saw her differently. 
And, and she was able to, to give them a safe place to say honest things that they couldn't say anywhere else in that culture. And very quietly through her witness, she was able to work miracles in the lives of people. Sometimes our talents get invested in the most unlikely of ways. The tough issue in the parable of the talents is really trying to figure out what Jesus is saying to the third servant. Why those harsh and damning words, throw this worthless one outside, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Let's, let's pause for just a second and think about what Jesus doesn't mean. Because first, and this is really important, I don't think what he's saying is that if our investment fails, we get thrown into a place of damnation. Throw the servant outside into darkness, weeping, gnashing of the teeth. It's a way of saying, and it's still harsh, it's still tough, but get him out of my sight. Have you ever had those desperate parenting moments? I just, I can't deal with it right now. Get them out of my sight. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is an expression that happens throughout the scriptures. It's a sign of, of regret and remorse and, and, and bottled up anger. It's what you feel when you know that you've really blown it and you're left with the pain of all the emotions that are there. Some of you actually know what that's like physically because you grind your teeth with stress and anxiety and worry, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what Jesus is not saying is that these people are thrown into damnation the second thing he's not saying is that the way that we manage our gifts is to be equated with the way to salvation. Salvation is always a free gift of God through Christ. It is not through any of our works. So, so let's not pretend that this is a new message, a different gospel than the one that we love. But we shouldn't sauce sell it. There is a reminder here that we are held accountable still for the lives that we leave. Remember always that Jesus is not speaking to unconverted people. He's speaking to his disciples. This is a tough love message for those who follow him, who have already left everything behind to serve him. It's a message that he still wants followers to hear. And finally, let's remember that the consequence of our actions is not just what happens when we die. Stand before the throne in some eternal future where you'll be called to give an account, but we are still accountable today and every day. So if that's not what Jesus means, what, what did he mean? What's he saying? The king begins by congratulating his people on their good works. In today's currency, the equivalent amount that he's entrusting to each of these three servants, the first is given close to $2 million. The king returns from his travels, sees that the servant has increased the capital, doubled it, excited, puts him in charge of a large enterprise and says, come and share in your master's happiness. He looks at the second service, who's also doubled their investment, gives the same congratulation. Both, even though they were working with different amounts, are received warmly and congratulated. What do they do? We don't know if one had more experience in the business world, one was better with investment capital. All we know is that they took a significant investment that had been left with them, and they used it, they took a risk, and for the risk they are rewarded. The third servant, again, we don't know their credentials, but we know this. 
motivated less by risk and entirely by fear, he took the money and buried it. Why did he do that? He gave his answer. I was afraid. And he offers the most preposterous excuse that you can think of. He defends his actions by reminding the king that he is known for being a tough guy. You take from places you haven't invested. That's almost as if he's accusing him of a crime. The argument's weak. It's, it's kind of a veiled accusation. and It doesn't explain his actions. It, all it does is try to accuse the king of something. And even if the king was, as the servant said that he was, known for toughness and, and uh, inscrupulous business practices, it makes no sense that the response of just burying the money would be what comes of it. When it comes time for the king to speak, he, he doesn't defend his, ex- his uh, actions, he doesn't excuse himself. All he says is that if what you say is true, why would you not all the more work to try and achieve some result on my behalf? What the parable really is doing is challenging a play-it-safe mentality in life. And we're kind of caught up short, aren't we? By a cautious, uh, a lackadaisical attitude that tries to preserve respectability and stability and comfort or excuses us because of our age. This is a tough generation for the church in Canada. One of the things that makes it even more dangerous is that the church in this generation is being led by baby boomers and baby busters of whom I'm a part, and so are you. And our reflex is to move always in the direction of self-protection. To make sure that the last few years that we have in life or ministry are well protected so that things end okay. We begin to operate based on fear and not faith. There's always a danger of failure. The nature of faith is to risk, not to be cautious. And somehow in God's upside-down kingdom, failure is not due to being prudent, but the unwillingness to take risks. Too many of our churches would rather close, go quietly into the night, and risk something bold and new for God and for the sake of this generation. When we hide a talent in the ground, we put our faith in the drawer for safekeeping and just take it out on Sunday morning and shop it around a little bit on display, polish it up a little bit, and then go back in the afternoon when the football game begins, put it back in the drawer, pretend it has nothing to do with the rest of our week. That's putting it all in the ground. To such behavior, Jesus says, get out of my sight. I need risk takers. In fact, listen to what the servant says in response to his king. He says, yes, sir, I I give you back everything that's been given. It's all here, 100%. Not a cent is missing. You see, I know you, sir. I know that you have a tendency to grab everything in sight. You take from crops you did not plant. I know you're tough. And knowing this, I said to myself... 
Self, you need to be careful here. Keep track of every red cent that he's given you. And so that's what I did. I'm a careful accountant. I made sure every cent was in place when I returned it to you. I didn't take one nickel for myself. It's all here. And listen again to how the Master responds. If you knew that I was tough, then why in the world did you refuse to act except to protect your own butt? If there's one thing about me you should have known by now, it's that I don't let today be tomorrow. We don't live our lives selfishly protecting what we have. Instead, we look for opportunities today. Look, when I invited you to partner with me, I knew your track record, and I trusted you. I gave you money to invest because I knew you had the ability to make good on it. And I didn't even tell you you had to make more. I was asking you to try to make more. So I've been in this game a long time. I know there's no guarantees with investment. There's always the risk of failure, but no risk, no success. You either use it or lose it. And I was asking you to take a risk and you let me down. You played it safe. And now by playing it safe, not only did you not increase the $600,000 that I gave you, but you've lost it all. I'm taking it away. I'm going to give it to somebody who's already demonstrated their willingness to be bold and take a risk. And so get out of here. I just can't have you in my sight right now. That's the awful consequence of those who bury the opportunities of faith. Why does it matter so much? What is it about the kingdom of God that calls us to risk-taking behavior? The Scriptures from the very beginning to the very end make it clear that faith is the essential commodity in the kingdom of God. The antithesis of faith is unfaith, kind of like uncola. We have a choice. We can live in faith believing that, has, that God has called us and equipped us, will be with us when we take risks, or we can live outside of it. The focus message of this parable is that faith will be examined. And it kind of leaves us, it calls us as a church to this question, are we willing to trust in the potential of God's gifts even to the point of being bold in our risks. Riskiness is not the same as carelessness, by the way. And riskiness is not a function of your personality type. Only type A personalities are are risk takers. It's not the same as going crazy in the stock market or going far out on a shaky limb. But it's trusting that the Holy Spirit will be there to empower us in the opportunities that come our way every day. Otherwise, faith can be entrenched. It gets stuck in familiar routines. It gets trapped in a kind of play-it-safe mindset. In a very real sense... God needs us. That sounds borderline heretical, I realize, but hear me out on this. There there was a critic who told Stradivarius, great violin maker, that if God really wanted violins, he could make them himself. And Stradivarius said this, incredulous in his response, said, no, 
Not even God could make my violins without Stradivarius. Now, in a sense, he's wrong, of course, but in a sense, he's right. It's not that God can't, for there's nothing that God cannot do, but it seems to be that God created human beings stamped with his imprint in his image, the Imago Dei, in order to be co-managers, co-workers, and risky co-creators with him in the world. God chooses to have great violins because of great violin makers. Each of us is given these opportunities and abilities and encouraged to take advantage of them. First two servants, five talents, two talents, set off to take advantage of every opportunity they could find. Keep in mind this story is, is symbolic in the amounts, but, but the point is that there are opportunities every day to advance the kingdom of God in the world. And to see an opportunity as investment enables us to decide how to respond. We either use it, or we lose it. So what do you do? Take an inventory of your life. We've been working on that for the past six weeks. Keep it simple. Lord, what is it that you've given me? What have you given me that I'm hiding? You may even want to ask this question of some other people. Get people who know you well and ask them to help identify your gifts. And then you open up a dialogue with the Lord. Some find it helpful to do this in a journal. They can better see their thoughts a few weeks later. But you identify one or two things, gifts, abilities, opportunities, time, financial resources, and you begin to plan for ways they can be used. Be risky. And then finally, you bathe the whole thing in prayer. You don't allow failures from the past to determine how much you're willing to risk. You focus on the call of Christ and the possibilities your investment might bring. And you believe that as God calls, God equips. And as you use it, your faith will grow. How much better that would be than losing it all together, right? Let's pray. God, they're hard words in this parable, but they're, they're important words. And because they are bound up in Scripture, we believe that they're your words. Help us to identify with each of the servants in the story. God, we want to be able to hear from from you saying, well done. Share with me in celebration. But there are also moments in our lives, Lord, where I know I'm caught up short. I need to learn through the tough love of a master that says, you could have risked more. You could have ventured more. God, you've entrusted us with so much more than we realize as we take inventory of your gifts in our lives. Help us not only to receive and understand them, but to seize on the opportunities to put them to good use for your sake. Well done. Words that we would love to hear. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Speak in our lives, we pray.